Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's March 9, 2022. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting from New York. The Israeli Path to Peace There may be hope for the world and for life as we know it. Ukraine's President, Vladimir Zelensky, and Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, have been speaking on a regular basis since Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24. On March 8, Zelensky personally thanked Bennett for intervening in the conflict and for trying to help bring Vladimir Putin to the negotiating table. And if Bennett is not quite Talleyrand, he does appear to have brought diplomatic skills of a very high order to the table. An article in the Jerusalem Post on March 8 describes Bennett as an intermediary who has been passing messages between Russia and Ukraine without explicitly identifying himself with one side or the other. The Jerusalem Post story presents Bennett as someone highly knowledgeable about the current state of the conflict and the chances for reconciliation as Russia grows more amenable to the demilitarization of certain parts of Ukraine rather than the entire country, and Ukraine backs down a bit from its insistence on immediate unconditional entry into NATO, a development that would only further stoke Russia's fear and alarm about the encroachment of hostile powers around its borders. But the Jerusalem Post article stresses that neither Bennett nor his counterparts in other Western nations are putting pressure on Ukraine to accept Russia's modified demands as the decision is rightfully Ukraine's and must not be made without due deliberation and introspection. Bennett's circumspection here redounds to his credit. It would be the most supreme irony if an Israeli political leader who came of age in the late 20th century told a relatively small, hemmed-in nation to accept uncritically the demands of a larger power. An artist's plight. How far does the reach of Cuba's repressive regime extend? In Joe Biden's America, a great deal further than you might think. During the Cold War, liberals and conservatives used to argue about just how bad communism was for those who had to live under it. When liberals said maybe the ills were exaggerated and things weren't as awful under communism as the hype might lead you to believe, the response of conservatives was often something to the effect of, Look at it this way. In capitalist democracies, there are guards to keep illegals out. And in communist societies, they have guards to keep people in. That quip must now be revised in light of what has happened to Anamali Ramos-Gonzalez, a Cuban-American art curator, professor, and member of the San Isidro Collective, who is currently based in Miami. San Isidro formed in 2018 with a view to opposing censorship in Cuba. A February 19 article by Ken Curson in Fine Art Globe, Cuban curator Anemily Ramos-Gonzalez stranded in Miami, details how staff at Miami International Airport, seemingly at the behest of the Cuban regime, barred Ramos from getting on an American Airlines flight bound for Cuba. Curson's piece cites a Miami Herald article stating that typically, when Cuban authorities deny someone entry to the island nation, it happens on the ground in Cuba and not at a U.S. airport. 
Following this extraordinary development, Ramos led protests in Miami's Little Havana neighborhood and granted an interview to Fine Art Globe, in which she said a lot of people had made their voices heard about what they consider a heavy-handed, indefensible act on the part of Cuba's regime. While it is far from the first time in recent years that people attempting to travel to Cuba have run into problems, Ramos said, her case is different because of her legal residence in Cuba. When asked whether she fears that the attention given her case might put her in danger, she said that, on the contrary, she feels safer in the spotlight. For all their heinousness, Cuba's officials are unlikely to try to strike at such a dissident in the U.S., who enjoys a very high public profile at the moment. It seems certain that things about communist regimes are constant over time. If the street protests over the treatment of Ramos are any indication, sentiment among Miami's Cubans runs just as high now as it did in the 1980s, when the survivors of the Mario Boatlift and other exiles and refugees coalesced into one of the most vocal and determined anti-communist diasporas anywhere in the world. A Terrorist Death Sentence Reimposed On March 4, the U.S. Supreme Court decided in a 6-3 ruling to reinstate the death sentence of Zokar Sarnev, the surviving member of the pair of brothers who set off two bombs at the Boston Marathon in 2013, killing three people and injuring hundreds, and then went on a rampage in the course of which they murdered a young MIT police officer and caused still more chaos, injuries, and destruction in the Boston area. An article in National Review published shortly after the ruling details the reasoning put to use by Justice Clarence Thomas, who spoke for the majority when stating that the defendant had received a fair trial before an impartial jury, as required under the Sixth Amendment. The dissent, expressing the views of Justices Stephen Breyer, Ilana Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor, supports the Court of Appeals' earlier finding that the district court was correct to insist that the defendant had the right to introduce certain evidence about his brother's involvement in a grisly triple murder in the Boston area years before, and that the judge in the earlier proceeding should have allowed defense lawyers to ask jurors about the prejudicial nature of pre-trial coverage of the 2013 attack, National Review's article explains. Ostensibly, the great care and deliberation around the imposition of the death penalty are designed to ensure that the state never puts an innocent person to death. Whether one is for or against capital punishment, such deliberation arises from coherent motives. But here we have a case where there is zero doubt on anyone's part as to the guilt of the defendant, yet he languishes in prison nearly a decade after the horrific attacks, costing many thousands of dollars from the pockets of the very taxpayers he and his brother traumatized in such a cowardly manner. The families of the three people killed and the hundreds injured in the 2013 incident, live not only with physical and mental scars, but with a daily humiliation of knowing that their money goes to feed and house one of the monsters who irrevocably altered their lives. If there is any consolation and cause for hope for the people of Boston in this endlessly drawn-out case, it is that the case falls under federal jurisdiction. The state of Massachusetts has not put anyone to death since 1947.
defending academic freedom in the New York Times? Those of us who have grown increasingly alarmed over what The Economist magazine in a cover story last September called The Threat from the Illiberal Left may be surprised at finding an op-ed piece passionately defending intellectual independence and freedom of speech in, of all places, The New York Times. The newspaper's one-sided treatment of world events and insistence on conformity to a highly specific viewpoint in its coverage has driven some readers to cancel their subscription. It also drove Barry Weiss, a commentator brought aboard with a specific goal of promoting diversity of viewpoint, to quit. Hence, it is gratifying that on March 7, the Times saw fit to publish a guest essay by Emma Camp, a senior at the University of Virginia, entitled, I came to college eager to debate. I found self-censorship instead. Miss Camp is not just another conservative with an axe to grind over political correctness and cancel culture. On the contrary, she describes herself as a liberal who sometimes takes a heterodox position. Miss Camp describes having had many hushed conversations with fellow undergraduates and even with professors on campus, undertaken in such a quiet tone out of fear that someone might hear an unacceptable opinion voiced on gender and sexuality or the merits of Thomas Jefferson. She relates how a friend shut his bedroom door when she was about to discuss with him a lecture she heard in defense of the third U.S. president. The roommate might have overheard. Some students are so terrified of social repercussions and of getting a lower grade for speaking out in class that they choose to clam up, no matter how wrong they may find the viewpoint of a professor or a fellow student to be. I went to college to learn from my professors and peers. I welcomed an environment that champions intellectual diversity and rigorous disagreement. Instead, my college experience has been defined by strict ideological conformity. Students of all political persuasions hold back, in class discussions, in friendly conversations, on social media, from saying what we really think, Ms. Camp writes. Her point applies not only to her own alma mater, but to higher education in America writ large where the erstwhile noble mission of intellectual inquiry and rigorous examination of viewpoints, in a word, thinking, has completely given way to mindless herd behavior. It is hard to know how to improve on her analysis, except perhaps to say that she might have gone a bit further in delineating the ideological reflex of the political and academic left when confronted with a critique such as hers. Sometimes, people on the left respond that conservative ideas and viewpoints don't meet much of a reception on campuses because they aren't competitive in the so-called marketplace of ideas. In other words, they insult those who question the ideological conformity. But imagine, if you will, a progressive student at a school with conservative leanings, like Hillsdale College. You do have to wonder how a progressive student pushing in good faith for greater diversity of opinion and a more welcoming reception for those students and visiting speakers who contradict the majority viewpoint, would react to the suggestion that his or her views and ideas fall on deaf ears because they are not competitive and not because of any ideological conformity enforced through the threat of ostracism and cancellation. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper.
Original Production.